This song was written by Mill Lampell, Lee Hayes, and yours truly, Peter Seeger, in the spring of 1941. That was the year that Henry Ford was being organized into the CIO. And Woody Guthrie had taught the three of us the old talking blues. You know, if you want to get to heaven, let me tell you what to do. Got to grease your feet in a little mutton stew. And I think Mill, it was, thought of paraphrasing that. And Lee added a verse, and I added a verse, and suddenly we had the song almost completed, except that we hadn't found any solution. We'd all we'd done is add up the problems that we hadn't found how to solve any of them. And about a month went by, and one day I was sitting up on the roof and realized that uh, there was only one solution to it, the old one of stick together. So I made two verses to end it off, none of them rhymed, and that's how the song Talking Union was born. Now you want higher wages, let me tell you what to do. Got to talk to the workers. The proposed learning standards that, that are currently being proposed here in Virginia almost entirely delete labor history totally, including language around the rise of organized labor and European industrial revolutions impact on labor unions and working families, uh, including women and children. Things like helmets, posters, buttons, keychains, hats, t-shirts, anything like that, they just put more of a, I don't know, like a tangible component to history, right? Like they, you can see and touch and feel history more than you can in a document. History standards in the state of Virginia are updated every seven years. The new proposed standards put forth this year by Governor Glenn Youngkin and his Virginia Department of Education would remove the American labor movement. The state's labor movement is fighting back. And last week on the Your Rights at Work radio show, we talked with the Virginia Education Association, Shane Riddle, and Brian Payton from Teamsters Local 322. In our second segment, Labor History Today producers Mel Smith and Patrick Dixon get a hands-on feel for labor history when they visit the George Meany Memorial Archives at the University of Maryland College Park, where Ben Blake and Alan Weirdak showed off a collection of construction hard hats and talk about how such physical artifacts provide an entry point as well as a key to understanding labor history. And on Labor History in Two... The year was 1910. That was the day that Congress expanded the Immigration Act passed just three years earlier. Be sure to stick around at the end of this show for a very special bonus, a song by the R.J. Phillips Band which recalls the events of the Columbia Eagle incident in 1970, when two merchant seamen staged a strike, at sea it's called a mutiny, against the war in Vietnam. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is Labor History Today. Here's what they found. Down in Bethlehem, here's what they found. Out in Frisco, here's what they found. That if you don't let red baiting break you up, if you don't let stool pigeons break you up, if you don't let race hatred break you up, if you don't let vigilantes break you up, you'll win. What I mean, take it easy, but take it. 
We're joined now by Shane Riddle. He's with the Virginia Education Association. And Brian Payton, he's with Teamsters Local 322. Shane and Brian, welcome to your rights at work. Thank you. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Chris. So, so guys, this is just just uh, give me the short version on this. I mean, Virginia's got so many serious problems. I was not aware that uh, teaching labor history was one of them. Can you uh, can you enlighten us here? Let me start off just for a second. First and foremost, stand in solidarity uh, with our brother trying to organize, trying to organize a union with uh, Brother Angelo, but. Some of what he was talking about actually really hit home for me personally. And we'll give everybody here like a very quick and brief uh, history lesson. The black nurses at the University of Virginia Hospital attempted to unionize. And in 1946, those actions prompted the General Assembly to pass a ban on public sector collective bargaining. So you see all this stuff is, is interconnected, so to speak. Uh, I, would, I would say, and, and Shane has seen this, the pushback from the proposed changes to the educational standards that, that seek to remove any mention of labor history and also the, the close connections to the civil rights have been met with a resounding no. So that's Brian Payton. He's with uh, Teamsters 322. And then uh, we've also got Shane Riddle on the line with the Virginia Education Association. And, and let me just sort of frame this because as somebody who leads labor history tours here in D.C., one of the things I know is that Many people tell me that when they were in, you know, high school, even college, if they got any labor history at all, it was usually, you know, 10 minutes, maybe one segment. So, it, it you know, like I say, to me, I thought the problem was we didn't have enough labor history in the schools, but apparently yeah. I was yeah. apparently I was wrong. Well, Chris, um, listen, I, I, I have a labor studies degree and, and, I, and I did not really, really dive deep into the labor studies and understanding labor history until I, I attended college. Now we learned a little bit about it in in like high school, but then those prior grades, um, hardly anything was taught as far as labor history. Now in Virginia, 2015, uh, the 2015 standards included some history on labor, but really not enough. And now the proposed learning standards that, that are currently being proposed here in Virginia almost entirely delete labor history totally including language around the rise of organized labor and European industrial revolutions impact on labor unions and working families, uh, including women and children. And, and one thing that there is, there is good reason, right? Excellent reason really for us to teach labor history in our social studies classrooms. We want our students and our young people to study the contributions of generations of union activists, right? Um, and we should teach our students the lessons of how union members help democratize America, particularly during the New Deal era when the labor movement created active voters and engaged citizens out of millions of blue collar workers. And most of them were disenfranchised workers. And so we feel like that, you know, this this should this should be a most priority for the Virginia Department of Education to include these, these lessons in their curriculum framework and standards. And so that's what we're pushing for. That's what we've been pushing for. And Brian uh, with the Teamsters and other unions 
that we partnered with through the Unity Table here in Virginia have done that. We've held a hearing, six to seven hearings around the state um, so that we can have our voices heard on uh, recommending insertions into the standards for, for grades, at least through grades six through grades 12, for sure. Um, and so um, it's very, very important, Chris and Ed, to, to include these, uh, these labor, this labor history. And um, the board is going to meet on April the 20th um, to, well, they're slated to meet on April the 20th. It could be postponed to a later date because of all of the action that we've had around this issue. So um, if it is on April 20th, we'll be there to make sure that to make sure that labor history is included. I, I want to bring Ed in and, and get Brian back in, but I actually want to go back to something that Brian raised. You know, Ray, the first thing that Brian talked about was a history, which frankly I was not familiar with, but you know, some stuff that happened with black nurses back in the 40s, right? And what I'm wondering before I bring Ed in on this is is what what is the rationale for take for, for for not teaching for, for taking this out? What 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 is they always have to have a cover story, right? So I mean, I'm, you know, so so what's what, what's the cover story here? That's that's a question for you, Shane. Oh, it's a question for me. Okay, yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, I can shed some light on that uh, from my perspective. I, you know, um, um, the the labor unions and labor history. Um, listen to me, should be no more exempt from critical history study or historical study than corporations. Right. In fact, union history shows that labor organizations have made much more progress in including women, immigrants, African-Americans and Mexican-Americans than any bank, law firm or other corporation. And I think that that balance, there is an intentionality to taking away that balance hmm. uh, between labor unions and corporations uh, and the employer and the employee relationship. And the balance there. And so that's the way I look at it. And, and I think in some ways it's intentional and we just have to make sure that a good, you know, it's, it's great that we noticed this early on uh, so that we could raise our voice and get involved. Because if we, if we don't, uh, then there's, then, then we, we, there's no balance anymore uh, between the, uh, uh, the worker uh, and, and the, and the corporation. So that's kind of the way I look at it. Brian, may have a different perspective on it, but I, I'm pretty sure we're aligned. Okay, so I actually want to build on what you just said, Shane. And the funny thing is, I recently went with my daughter's class to a, a field trip. Uh, my daughter's in first grade. We went on a, a field trip, and we actually went to the Air and Space Museum. And so, obviously, the Air and Space Museum focuses on advances in aviation and also uh, you know, trying to put people in, in space. But with that being said, I, I noticed a couple of exhibits that really stood out to me. And one of them in particular was focusing on, on the, once upon a time, they used to be called stewardesses now, but flight attendants. <laughs> yep, yep. Thank and, you. Thank and you. It, and, yes. And so, but I need to throw that out there to obviously explain the history behind it. So I, I bring my daughter over and I say, listen, my, my daughter, she knows what I do. She knows about unions. She, she understands it. And as a, as a matter of fact, she understands like the whole brotherhood, brother, sister, solidarity thing. So anyways, I, I bring her over. I say, uh, Tesla, come over. I want to show you something. She said, okay. So I bring her over and they've got this nice mural. They have something there about Dr. King. 
and obviously the civil rights movement. So she knows all about Dr. King. And she says, oh yeah, Dr. King. And her face lights up. So then I point to, point to the, the breakdown of the, like, the flight attendants. And I said, well, once upon a time, flight attendants, there was no marrying allowed within the, the aviation industry. And guess how that was changed? Because the grievance was filed. I think they proved that it was a violation of uh, Title VII. And ultimately, that changed. Once upon a time, there were standards. Like, hey, you could only be a, I'm going to use the old term, a stewardess if you were young, thin, attractive, and, and Caucasian. That changed. And so, you know, for me, that was really a pivotal moment, sitting there walking through this museum for that for the most part doesn't have a whole lot to do with civil rights, but you can see the imprint that unions have made all throughout the, the world, so to speak. Does all that make sense? Like it was oh, yeah. a very, very powerful moment for me. And then there was a, another exhibit uh, just talking about an individual that wasn't allowed to do certain things because of, you know, various reasons. And, and so for me to kind of build on what Shane just said, I think it is incumbent upon us to push back on this, which is what we're doing. Labor history is our history. And, and I think that it's important for the governor and anybody else to realize that, that working people in this, in this state, in this country, in the world, they deserve to have their story told. One last point that I want to make is you go back to when the pandemic started, okay? Oh, thank God for you. You're essential. You're the one that's that's moving freight. You're the one that's uh, delivering our medical equipment. You're the one that's doing all this stuff. And they were going around saying that we're heroes and we're doing this and we're doing that. Well, I think somebody previously stated in the show that that things that are happening now become history later on. I'm paraphrasing it. So is it not important for us to remember the legacy that that uh, blue collar workers played and unions played in keeping this country going when we were facing a pandemic? That's a very vital piece of history. And I think it needs to be needs to be uh, shared and, and, and it needs to be celebrated. Absolutely. Uh, you're listening to Your Rights at Work with Chris and Ed. We're talking about Virginia's labor history is under attack. We're talking with Shane Riddle. He's with the Virginia Education Association. And also, uh, you just heard Brian Payton. He is with Teamsters 322. Although, I don't know, Shane, sounds like you could probably sign Brian up for a VEA membership. Uh, he sounds, yeah. like a pretty good, <laughs> sounds like a pretty good teacher to me. <laughs> well, listen, um, we appreciate our brothers and sisters. Uh, yeah, with the Teamsters and all the other unions, too, on our unity table. Um, you know, that's our labor coalition here in Virginia. And, you know, if if we weren't uni as united as we are, we couldn't get the things done that we need to get done as far as the labor, uh, as far as labor goes. And you know what? The question you asked me earlier on, um, you know, why is this being done? Why Why are we taking labor history out in the proposed standards? Well, to me, I gave you my perspective, but, you know, it's about democracy. It's really about democracy. We, by studying labor history and the labor movement, this is the only good way to counter a limited notion of citizenship and a restricted concept of democracy. I think that really is all that it comes down to. Um, and, you know, making sure that workers have that voice and making sure our students and young people understand uh, that history and how it relates to um, the way that uh, 
you know, we cannot uh, restrict democracy. Uh, and, and, and democracy is really under attack in this country. Um, as I mean, it, it has been attacked for under attack for years, but most recently more than ever. You know, um, it's first of all, Brian and Shane, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, I wish we could stretch out the time a lot longer. I just had, I had a ton of comments and questions, but I wanted to just, uh, first of all, hey, why, why should we listen to teachers about what to teach? That's number one off my brain. <laughs> number two, number two is, uh, you know, I'm a big believer in history, warts and all. And Brian uh, talked about black nurses trying to organize in the 40s. I'll guarantee you that the labor movement in the 40s were not supportive of black nurses. And I think that should be taught. We should know our, our, our um, history of racism in the labor movement. That should be taught right along with, right along with our ability to uh, uh, provide people with better working conditions and better raises. One other comment I want to make in terms of education, get your butt down to Birmingham, Alabama, and go see the Legacy Museum. That'll affect you for the rest of your life, yep. life whether you're black, white, green, yellow, purple, I don't care. It is an amazing experience, and our National Union has committed to going every year. I went in 2015 and 2018, and I have to tell you there were moments i had to walk away from the group and just silently cry um uh it, it is devastating but it is so important i think that every school child should understand what happened in birmingham in 1965 and then certainly the legacy of slavery the legacy of incarcerating black men and brown men and uh, black men and brown women um so those are my comments i'm sorry you don't have a question but I, I you guys just you guys brought up a lot in me well said. <laughs> Thank you. Can Thank I make you. one yeah. final point? Yes, Can please. I make one final point? You got it, Brian. You're going to close this out, brother. Okay. Well, well, thank you. I'm I'm honored. So, a lot of people I don't think really fully understand this that that uh, President Jimmy Hoffa and Dr. Martin Luther King had a, a pretty close relationship. And so, with that being said, there was a lady, her name was Viola uh, Lizuo, if I'm pronouncing her last name correctly. Forgive me, I'm getting a little tongue-tied. And she was a 39-year-old woman from Detroit who was murdered on March 25th, 1965 by the KKK. She was actually in Alabama mm -hmm. volunteering for the Civil Rights March. Uh, the reason I'm sharing this with you is because I have in my office, I keep a photo of, of a bunch of people gathered at her funeral, and you have Dr. King, you have uh, Jimmy Hoffa, you've got James Farmer, a whole bunch of different people that are actively involved with the civil rights movement sitting here mourning this woman's death because they're because she was was so happy, so involved with this. And her husband was actually a business agent for the Teamsters, if I remember correctly. And so I think it's important that we remember and we also celebrate the fact that labor rights and and, and civil rights. They go hand in hand. They go hand in hand. You know, a, a lot of the advancements that have been made in this country are a combination of the two. And as I said before, Dr. King and um, and Jimmy Hoffa, they had a relationship. And I just think that that needs to be remembered. And I think there's also a specific reason why certain people are, are trying to remove that from our history. Yeah. Amen on that.
Yep. Thank you mm-hmm. so much. Uh, well, well said, Brian, and uh, thank you. Really appreciate uh, to both Brian and Shane for uh, you know giving us some labor history. Like I say, we can we can never uh, get enough of it, and it only stays alive through us. So let me just uh, thank you both, Shane Riddle with the Virginia Education Association, Brian Payton with Teamsters Three Twenty Two. Uh, we will continue to follow this issue. You can find out more about it. Uh, their website, VirginiaIsForLabor.com. Lots of information there. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1910. That was the day that Congress expanded the Immigration Act passed just three years earlier. The new language prohibited criminals, paupers, anarchists, and diseased people from entering the nation. During the first decade of the 20th century, some 9 million immigrants arrived on the shores of the United States. Many of these newcomers were from Eastern and Southern Europe. By 1910, 14.5% of the people residing in the United States were foreign-born. The numbers were even higher in the industrialized areas of the North and Midwest. Many leaders in organized labor worried what this large influx of immigrant labor would do to the U.S. labor market. They were fearful that the new workers would drive down wages and impede unionization efforts. Newspapers often used derogatory and disparaging language to describe the Southern and Eastern European immigrants. Public anti-immigrant sentiment continued to grow. In 1924, Congress then passed an even more restrictive Immigration Act. That year, American Federation of Labor President Samuel Gompers wrote a letter to Congress urging them to restrict immigration. He wrote, quote, Shutting out from our shores the poor of other nations and races is caused by the law of necessity and self-protection consequent upon our industrial system. Labor does not desire to erect a wall around our country and prevent the poor of other nations from entering. It does not declare that America is for America alone. But it does insist that there should be and must be some restriction of immigration that will prevent disintegration of American economic standards. Debates over immigration and its impact on American labor continue to be hot-button political topics. Hello, this is Mel Smith with a mini Cool Things report from the George Meany Memorial AFL-CIO archives at the University of Maryland in College Park. Patrick and I visited Alan Weirdak and Ben Blake after they had received an eclectic collection of hard hats that a donor had accumulated over the span of 25 years. Alan first provided an explanation on how this new inventory could be used in research, as well as some initial questions students and researchers can ask when examining these sorts of ephemera. Alan, so we have a really wide, diverse collection of hard hats. So I was curious, how, what's the, how do you use something like this. I think a lot of people associate archives with written documents. These are very physical, colorful, like eye-catching ephemera. What's the benefit of having this sort of material in your archives? I think more ephemeral collections, I feel like they have almost like a gateway value to students. When we have instruction sessions and things like that, when you're introducing, especially undergraduate students, into archives and special collections, especially labor archives, I feel like things like helmets, posters, buttons, keychains, hats, t-shirts, anything like that. They just put more of a, I don't know, like a tangible component to history, right? Like they, you can see and touch and feel history more than you can in a document. 
And I think that in terms of the gateway component, say you have an interest in any of these unions or any of these companies, something like this can just jar something in your brain about seeking the papers of a company or of a union or seeking the records or the internal discourse around something as simple as a hard hat. I think that's really, that's one of the things that really jumps out at me about these ephemeral collections. As a historian and archivist, I generally lean towards paper records. When you, when you do instruction sessions, sometimes you'll put a paper, a folder of paper records in front of an undergraduate student and it's like, somewhere between either intimidating or possibly even just like boring and stale because there isn't a lot of context. So I think when you have the more physical side along with documentation and the more paper side, I think it just provides a more complete picture. Yeah, I feel like when we were looking through the hats, we kept pointing to them and be like, oh, I wonder what this sticker means, or I wonder what, what year this could be, or that, that sort of thing. So rather than looking for answers, it can be a place to start for, for questions and research. Absolutely. And I think sometimes history is not necessarily about the answers, but about how some answers generate further questions, right? Say we have this one right here, Halliburton right on the front. Halliburton as a corporation has a very storied, troublesome, problematic history. Just having a helmet like this can just help students ask questions about Halliburton or Odeco or anything that's on these helmets. One other thing that I think about this collection specifically is that it shows you the, evol the evolution of workplace safety in a very physical way. And I would also say, I guess documents tend to be preserved from more the organizational side, but there's a lot of personal sides. There's a lot of names that we saw. There's bullshit. I yeah, guess. let's take the helmet that you found. It says, Gary, and then bullshit, which, you know, that, that's a lot of, I want to know what's bullshit. Right. Is it the hard hat? Is it working at, at New Jersey Transit? Because that's where the helmet comes from. So is it safety on the job as a New Jersey Transit worker? Is it, is that bullshit? Was Gary having a bad day? And I think that these helmets just individually can tell stories about individual workers, whether it's through this BP helmet and how worn it is, the level of wear and tear on helmets in comparison. After sorting through some of these hard hats, Ben drew some inferences that archivists could make concerning individual stories, as well as some broader and more general themes in union history, using observations from the helmets, his own personal anecdotes, and his extensive labor history knowledge. As uh, you can see here from LTV Steel, a company that is went bankrupt and i believe this is from the cleveland works if i it says ohio yes cleveland ohio so this mill still operates this was originally republic steel mill ltv bought it they went bankrupt and then i think it's ig metal now operates that mill so it's one of the few basic steel mills operating in the united states today and this shows you how hard the work is in the mill. It's got all kinds of markings on here. It says Grayland wire cloth, so I'm not sure what that means. Oh, and I hadn't seen this before. So this is an area foreman. So this guy would actually have been in management. And then it has something here called the 56BFCG East. I'm not sure what that was, but it's interesting. It's got a National Society Prevent Blindness Wear Goggles. So he might have ex had someone or experienced some eye injury. But I really like these helmets because you can see all the, this is even a foreman. A lot of times in steel back in the day, 
they did a lot of the work too. They were, and this guy likely came up through the ranks. And there was a much more of a camaraderie on crews with a foreman than it depends sometimes. Like when I worked at U.S. Steel, we had some foreman we didn't <laughs> basically want to talk with. So like the wear and tear that you see, could that be a potential like signal as he, like if he became a foreman, that he would still be someone that workers would want to talk to because it signifies that he worked a lot? Yeah, this would be a hands-on foreman. Gotcha. I had okay. a foreman, Gary Works. We were working on a weekend and we were clearing out the sludge under a rolling two feet with buckets and we would do them up through a hatch in this pit. He was right down there working with us, which he could have been sitting in the office not getting dirty at all. And we loved that guy because he came up through the ranks. Most of the other foremen were college educated. But all these Knicks show this guy was for real. And it could have been that he wore this helmet before he became a foreman too and then just added the lettering. But this is the exact kind of helmet I wore at U.S. Steel back in the, be like 78, exactly the same. So yeah, these were important in a steel mill because a lot of things flying around above you. <laughs> so these two are from the same person is what we can guess so far, because they have the same name on it. And they have a lot of different stickers that are saying a lot of different things. So what are, what's some of the stickers that we see right now? I love this one. It, I've never seen these two stickers before. And this one says, can you hear me now? And it's a bulldog with one of those collars and he's grabbing a rat and squeezing him. And it's, can you hear me now, union. <laughs> so he's basically, the idea is he's trying to convince somebody who's a company man, we used to call him, that he should be support of the union. He should be a union person, not a company person. And then here we have, you know, Carrie Edwards, IBW, apparently endorsed him back in the day. This one I love too. Again, it's like rat busters. <laughs> Again, that's a reference. This could also be a reference to non-union electricians on construction sites, maybe. And then there's something called OKC. I'm not sure what, oh, so this is interesting. It has a Native American symbol and it says OKC. I'm not sure what that stands for. Could it be Oklahoma City? Yeah, it could be. Yeah, it could be because we don't, the local, oh, yeah, and you're right. It's Oklahoma, It's probably Oklahoma City and it's local 1141. And this has 1141 down here. So these are both from the local. And then, <laughs> this is hilarious, apparently no whining. <laughs> so file agreements, but no whining. And the others look like some companies that they may have uh, run some equipment. And they have the 80th anniversary. So this union goes back to at least the 1920s, this local. So that that's wonderful. That shows some real staying power. And it's, it's cool because I guess, like with these stickers, it reminds me of like people my age will put them on laptops. You know, I yeah. don't know if you see it in yeah. classrooms. Yeah. So it's cool. So maybe it's like a site where workers can have a lot of self-expression. They have something that maybe is uniform, but then they also can put on their own spin. So especially like the no whining one is it like signifies some type of attitude. Yeah, yeah. It's be pro-union, but don't be a whiner. Like it, instead of whining, file those grievances, take it serious. So this is interesting, the same guy, but it's a different local 20, Dallas-Fort Worth. This looks like it was Oklahoma City. So this apparently probably was the helmet. It's got Oklahoma City on this too, but he also must have used it in Dallas-Fort Worth. So that's interesting. And this other sticker says confined space train 2002, which I think is great. 
putting that, he's proud of the safety training, a supervisor or manager, whatever, they know right away he's trained to do certain kinds of work. And that's something obviously in construction trades is so important because how dangerous the work is. But going back to the students and laptops, that's one of the main motivations why I took this collection in, because I knew students would really be interested in this. And because, you know, workers out on construction sites with stickers and stuff, you don't want to go up to the guy and say, hey, what's your stickers on your helmet? But in class, in classrooms, we can do that. And this is the kind of thing that's a door into more interest in labor. Oh, hey, what, do you have any other things on the electrical workers? And so it opens a door attract students, opens a door. Posters and buttons also do that, and t-shirts in our t-shirt collection. So artifacts in a lot of ways are illustrative of union activities. One of the things we were talking about earlier, it's hard to do individual research on these helmets. As archivists, we just don't have time because you know we're managing 40,000 feet of records, but students might have time. And this would be a great project for a student to learn about those locals, particularly if we have a lot of students from out of state here in Maryland. They could research it if it was their hometown or they had a relative in that city. And so these helmets, I think, are, are really a wonderful artifact showing how hard workers are, work and based on all the scratches on a lot of these. And also that union ethic of being proud to be a union member and understanding the importance of the union and how they protect people on the job. Yeah, and I would imagine it's, it's almost an easy way. It's not overwhelming if you're like, oh, I want to research the IBW, but that's a huge topic. This is like, we get to know this one person and then that sort of helps you start asking more general questions. So you get to have a, like a conversation with something that's really that's microscopic. Yeah. a really good point. Uh, and that's why I think oral histories are so important. And we're hoping this year to start an oral history program in our cool. labor archives. And the first person I want to interview is an iron worker in Chicago that has this amazing collection. And we have the Carpenters Work, Carpenters Union collection here. So it would be great to, the IBW has a museum downtown in downtown DC for the membership. And they have apparently from what I've heard, I haven't been down there, a small archives. But I definitely want to work with the building trades. Ideally, if we had all the folks that had all these hard hats, if we could interview them holding the hard hat, that'd be great because they have just really important history. And that whole individual story, their legacy lives on in the helmet. That's it from this mini Cool Things report. I want to thank Alan and Ben at the Meany Archives for their time and thoughts on such a fascinating collection. Until next time, I'm Mel Smith for Labor History Today. And that's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. Even better if you like what you hear, and we sure hope you do. Please like it in the podcast app, pass it along, and leave a review. That really helps folks to find the show. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show, that's a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. You can find out more about the fight to save Virginia's labor history at virginiaisforlabor.com. And for more on the George Meany Labor Archives, we've got a link in the show notes. Our music today was Talking Union with Pete Seeger. 
Labor History Today is produced by the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. On March 14, 1970, two United States merchant seamen, Clyde McKay and Alan Glakowski, staged a strike at sea, it's called a mutiny, against the captain and crew aboard the SS Columbia Eagle as it crossed the Pacific during the Vietnam War in an attempt to prevent 10,000 tons of napalm from being used by the U.S. military. We'll close today's show with Deep Water, a song by the R.J. Phillips Band, which recalls the events of the Columbia Eagle incident. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening, keep making history, and see you next time. Thailand we were bound The cargo we carried Was meant to scorch the ground 10,000 tons of napalm Might bring a victory The last thing we expected Was a mutiny Two merchant seamen Clyde and Al Armed with guns in hand They hijacked the eagle Assumed the ship's command If they could stop the genocide Risk their lives they would I wondered if their motives Would be misunderstood Surrendered to authority. 